Is the pandemic nearly over? The World Health Organization says the end is in sight, but warns against complacency. Is its assessment realistic? And what lessons can be learned in case we face another one? I'm Imran Khan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in Geneva, Dr. Margaret Harris, spokeswoman for the World Health Organization. Jeffrey Lazarus, who heads the Health Systems Research Group at Barcelona's Institute for Global Health. He joins us from Dublin. And in Abuja, Sarah Maka, Interim Africa Director for the One Campaign. Welcome all of you to the show. I want to begin in Geneva first with Margaret Harris. So the WHO has released six key policy documents. Are they effectively a blueprint on how to do things better? Indeed, they're actually a distillation of what we've learned in the last 32 months of this terrible pandemic. And we have learned some really important lessons. They're also a plea to governments to actually apply them because now's the time to really double down, not to relax. Uh, Sarah Maka in Abuja. Sarah, um, it must be very disappointing for you that the WHO has said the end is in sight and they've released this, these six policy documents. But the continent, the African continent, had huge amounts of trouble actually getting vaccines early on, distributing those vaccines. There isn't a specific uh, policy document for the African continent. That must be frustrating for you. You know, one of the things that we had an awakening on with this pandemic uh, on the continent is not just the debilitating nature that the health crisis brought, especially at the peak of it, but the twin economic crisis that is happening and unfolding as we speak. So this time last year, uh, countries came together and said, you know, 70% of all income country population should be vaccinated by the end of this year. Most high income countries, about 63.9% or so, the African continent is still at 22.6%. If we started on this, continued on this pace, it will take us four to five years to reach 70%. So what I'd like to see in such a global document is not only what have we learned, which is really important. I mean, some of the things that I hope are in there are the vaccine inequity that we saw, Africa's lack of vaccine sovereignty, the low-income countries getting higher prices for vaccines at the peak of this, um, vaccine hesitancy across um, the globe, quite frankly, including Africa. But I think what I would like to see as well is how do we a, learn from this, but B, recognize that it's not just a health crisis, it's actually also an economic crisis that is still ongoing. Well, let's talk about the economics of all of this. Jeffrey Lazarus is in Dublin. Jeffrey, uh, this cost governments billions of dollars. Uh, it's not something that they're going to want to repeat. The WHO's advice is actually, if they implement it properly the way the WHO wants it to be implemented, is actually going to cost them billions of dollars. Again, if there's another pandemic, there's got to be hesitancy there, right? There's definitely hesitancy. I mean, governments are thinking about politics. They're also thinking about economics, um, as you mentioned, and they don't always play um, the long game. If they had acted earlier, um, even just before WHO announced it as a public health emergency of international concern back in January 2020, I really don't think we'd be where we are now. And I think if they followed WHO's advice, but also you know, many other organizations and strong research about how to control and ultimately end a pandemic as a public health threat. Um, I think they'd be not just saving money now and, and in the long run, but also saving lives. We're facing 
you know, well, earlier we were faced with, you know, huge numbers of deaths and very high, very high mortality. Um, now it's really a question of morbidity, long COVID and so much suffering because governments are not reacting strongly enough. Uh, Margaret, uh, in Geneva, you've heard what our two guests had there have had to say. It sounds like you need a document that has a bit more teeth. Actually, this is a distillation of what we've learned, but we have many documents with a lot of teeth. And I'd like to say with Africa particularly, but not just Africa, but countries that were at the back of the queue, no, we knew would be at the back of the queue for vaccines, for um, all the, the equipment, for the tests, because we've seen this over and over and over again. The wealthy, the well-resourced grab all the resources very quickly. We set up the Act Accelerator in 2020 for that very reason. Now, it has not been perfect and it has not achieved all the things we wanted to achieve, but we have got vaccines out to many, many countries. We have not done nearly as well as we need to. That's uh, absolutely correct to say that many countries in Africa are not in the position we want them to be in. I, we have 11 member states that have vaccinated less than 10% of their populations, whereas the first of these policy briefs, that it really emphasizes the need to vaccinate 100% of your high-risk groups. That's your older people and your healthcare workers. So it is really, really important to have raised the issue of getting those vaccination levels up. And I'd like to thank Professor Lazarus for pointing out exactly the critical thing. Governments need to act when the, the, the alarm is raised and, and act together and really apply things. If they spend the money early, it might seem like a bit of money, but it's so much less money than we've all lost and the terrible economic consequences we've seen as a result of not acting early when the alarm was raised. Governments need to act together, Geoffrey. It's something that you did mention, but we don't have a UN Security Council for Health. We don't have a, a, a mechanism where governments can discuss a unified approach. And that, during the pandemic, was laid bare. But no one's going to sign up to that, are they? I mean, how do you get governments to act in unity? Well, we do have a UN Security Council. And almost 20 years ago, they did pass a resolution on HIV AIDS as a major security threat. So, you know, there is that option to go through the Security Council. Um, we also have the World Health Assembly, which governs WHO, and that's where they have been discussing COVID-19. What I'd like to see is similar to other WHO strategies that all member states have signed on to, whether it's viral hepatitis, um, HIV, or, or other conditions, that we have those six policy documents, but also all of the other guidance and information in one place with a clear set of targets, a commitment to measure it, and having that approved um, at the World Health Assembly or at an emergency meeting of the World Health Assembly so we can be monitoring and also so that we know uh, you know, what exactly needs to be done and when it needs to be done. Because right now, you know, as was mentioned, there are a lot of WHO documents. There's a lot of technical guidance, normative standards, but we need it very clearly in one place with what to do and when and for governments to um, approve it. It's interesting that you mentioned HIV AIDS there and particularly the Security Council acting. Uh, when um, HIV AIDS was confined to the African continent, I remember as a, as a teenager growing up in the UK, people weren't simply talking about it. It's only when it became, and it's a question to you, Sarah, a problem within the West that government started to act and the Security Council got involved. That never happened this time around. 
Do you think there needs to be a stronger, much more global uh, focused alliance just for health? You know, it's it's really, um, as Jeffrey mentioned earlier, there are lots of policy documents. The real question is the um, not just the commitment, but the delivery on the promises. So even this time around, there are lots of promises made. The G20, the G7, many Western countries promised a lot. For example, we will recycle $100 billion in SDR, special drawing rights to African countries, just to cushion the fiscal constraints. Today, we are at $58 billion pledged to be recycled. How much has been actually recycled to country? Zero. So there's a gap between the promise and the actual delivery. And that's the gap we need to bridge. Um, it's not enough to have the policy document. It's not enough to make the, the declaration at the UN or the G7 or G20. What really matters is the delivery. And I, with, with this pandemic, it seemed like if the world was a, a building and one part of the building was on fire, as long as Folks in the other part that were not that was not on fire felt safe. They didn't put out the fire. But the truth of the matter is, these issues, just like any other interconnected issues, whatever happens over there impacts you over there eventually. But we're not seeing that intellectual connection being made to be matched with the political will of government, and we're seeing a lot of politics in it. Quite frankly, I don't know what it'll take um, apart from it affecting people in the West. I don't know what it'll take. To, to have people see us all as interconnected mm. and what we're not, all of us are not safe until, each of us are not safe until all of us are safe. So we've been touting that for a while at one campaign. And yes, the, the, the narrative is, is, catching, is catching up with folks are understanding it, but we still need to bridge the promises and the delivery. Margaret, I see you nodding in agreement there to what Sarah Makia has been saying, but the Lancet Medical Com uh, Journal had its commission. They've issued their report. If this was a school report, uh, it would be must try harder. Uh, there's a lot of criticism here. Health authorities weren't fast enough in their response to the outbreak. There were delays acknowledging that COVID-19 was spreading by air. The list goes on of criticisms. How do you deal with that? How do you make sure that we've learned and we can do better? I think one of the critical things is having a good and continuing assessment of what's going on all the time and always updating and really learning and looking. So again, it's good to have commissions and reports like this that discuss. But Sarah's made a, a, another important point. You can go back to previous outbreaks. I mentioned before, we knew that the well-resourced countries would be grabbing all the resources because we'd seen that in previous outbreaks. So let's make this a time the world says we've got, we've learned all these lessons. Let's apply them. Can we really work together? That is my hope from all of this. I have seen some of that with the science world. I have seen the scientific world working together day in, day out. I would really like to say at this moment, the people I would like to thank are all the scientists who come every day, unpaid, join thousands of meetings to debate, to argue, they often disagree, but they have changed what we've understood about this. They develop the vaccines, they develop the changes in our understanding of how the virus works, they found the variants. And this is something we should latch on to. Listen to the people who really are committed to working together and changing things and apply the lessons that they've learned for us. Jeffrey, uh, the Lancet Medical Commission report was pr made pretty bleak reading for uh, people in the WHO, people who are very worried still about COVID-19. Were their find findings valid? 
I think they were. And, and, and I would say it wasn't um, the score or the grade wasn't try harder. That was the recommendation. It was try much harder. The, the grade was really the world collectively failed. And so we point out where the failures were in, in an effort to, to make changes moving ahead. That's why we came out with 11 overall recommendations, including strengthening WHO and multilateralism, but also importantly that we have a, you know, a global strategy. Every country has a preparedness plan. And I understand that countries didn't have those plans necessarily before the pandemic, even though WHO and others have always been encouraging them to do that. I remember from my own days at WHO 20 years ago, when we were asking countries to have these kinds of plans. Um, but now, you know, over two and a half years into the pandemic, there are still most countries not having such a plan. The other recommendation, you know, we made is to have a vaccines plus approach. So we've just heard about vaccine hesitancy, poor distribution, you know, almost a dozen countries with under 10% of the population vaccinated, lots of concern about um, getting boosted when, how often, which booster vaccine um, to use. Um, but we also need to think beyond the vaccine. You know, how can we make the world a safer place, including better ventilation and air filtration, even through simple things like opening doors and, and windows, um, weather permitting, because we know that that helps disperse some of the virus since the virus you know, is transmitted through the air through aerosols. Uh, Sarah, I'll bring you in just a second, but I want to change the flow of the conversation just for a minute. Jeffrey, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, what we're talking about is uh, the idea uh, that you do, things can be done better, and you have the recommendations, you've made the recommendations. The WHO seems to have listened to those recommendations and issued these policy briefing documents. We're in effectively quite a good place for information, for guidance but you're still fighting anti-vaxxers. You're still fighting misinformation, the, the internet. Uh, even people within my own family are still reading things that are plainly ridiculous, but uh, they completely believe them. The misinformation, that was one of the biggest problems. And is that being addressed? Well, WHO you know, called this an infodemic, um, and, and rightly so. There are those who are asking questions, which is reasonable, but there are also those who are, you know, spreading misinformation, false information um, on purpose, you know, creating chaos and, and confusion and, and on a pretty regular basis. So we need a much better um, response, a multilingual response. We also need to address just like it's illegal to provide inside information that can affect the stocks or in the stock market. Um, we need to you know, get better at cracking down on those who are providing false information and the platforms that are um, you know, allowing that false information to be spread. Just like we talked about here on Inside Story, I think about half a year ago with the Spotify controversy. Uh, Sarah, it must be a real concern for you as well, this spread of misinformation. Um, are, how do you deal with that on a day-to-day -day level? So yeah, you know, one of the we've done two things that are that I think are profound. Today, actually, we are working um, as we speak with the AU in Ethiopia, um, where our young champions are going on the street to educate people on vaccines, listening to what hesitation looks like, um, reinforcing, you know, the good messages and debunking the the false information. Quite frankly, among those champions are doctors in Ethiopia who have joined them on the uh, on the ground. So I think. Those kinds of efforts are important. We also had something in the midst of the pandemic called the Myth of Vax campaign. Um, we had this in, in concert with the AU and a few other partners with TikTok, 
now meet people where they are, where they are is on TikTok, where they are is on social media. And we had a, a little game that says, is this a myth or, or a truth about the vaccine? That reached over a hundred million people viewed and participated with that element. We all need to do more. There's some regulatory elements that can be infused, just like Jeffrey said earlier, to say if, if just like you know, insider information is illegal, spreading deliberately spreading false information should have some penalty. But at the same time, we need to socialize and sensitize the positive information because at the end of the day, this pandemic could be one of many. So how do we make sure we build the rail so at the next cycle, we're taking those. Um, those lessons that the WHO just released and um, we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up better for the next pandemic that comes. And information tackling is definitely one of the high points. Uh, Margaret, the WHO did do a very good job in getting information out. So the Director General was almost on every single news channel at one point every single day giving updates. The information was there. But Sarah makes a very, very good point. That's not really where young people are getting their information. It's TikTok, it's social media, it's things like that. Is that now the new battleground for the WHO? Is that where you need to put your resources? We're putting our resources very much in, in all the different platforms that reach all the different audiences. So indeed, if you're a young person, well-connected, that TikTok's where you might be. But if you're an older person somewhere or you're not a person who reads, you'll be reached another way, perhaps by your neighbour, as, as Sarah mentioned, by your doctor. Um, it, so it's highly variable. But what we have found... And you're, it was quite right to mention that we labeled this an infodemic. We actually have developed a, a whole specialty, a whole team of experts. And we've partnered with um, many of the tech companies who've been tremendously helpful um, to understand, again, what's going on out there? Who can we reach? How can we reach people? And we've also developed a system called social listening. It's not just about talking to people, it's listening to them. What are they hearing? What are they thinking? What do they need from us? Because we're no good if we're not responding to what people out there in the world are thinking, doing. And what we really want is to be acting on things that are going to protect their health and protect their lives. Uh, Jeffrey. So the pandemic is coming to an end. The end is in sight, according to the WHO. So why do we need to fight anymore? Why don't we just, like, stop? Like, it's, all, it's nearly over. Let's just move on to something else. Well, Dr. Tedros did say that the end is in sight, and a lot of media picked that up. But the other WHO experts at the press conference also said that we can expect more cases, we can expect possible waves, that it's possible, maybe even probable, that we'll see new variants and possibly variants of concern. So it was really, for me, that it's a sense of guarded optimism. I mean, we're in a good spot. We have vaccines. We have great knowledge now about the virus, how it spreads, how to um, address the disease, both preventing it and treating it. Um, but we, I do not think the end, if the end is in sight, it's certainly elusive and in sight far down the road. Now is the time not to um, let up our guard, um, especially heading, at least in this part of the world, into the autumn and winter months where people will be inside more, where we can expect more transmission, and that's fertile ground for um, new variants. Uh, Margaret, the end is in sight, perhaps a little bit too early, those words? Well, I, I think I need to correct that, as Jeffrey said, that wasn't entirely all that he said. He, the sentence actually is, we are not there yet but the end is in sight. And he went on to say, we can see a potential finish line, but, 
but now is the worst time to stop running. So the message was, we can get there. But we have to do so much. And all the things Jeffrey mentioned, as as a country goes into the cooler months or into a, a period when you're crowded and close together, having mass gatherings, when transmission's much more likely, that's when you have to take more precautions. That's when you have to think again about perhaps wearing masks if you're in crowded conditions. That's when you have to have the windows open. We have to get serious about ventilation. We have not seen nearly the kind of efforts to improve ventilation, improve working conditions, improve schools, all the things that led us here. We've got to change and, and the work must be done now. Uh, Jeffrey Lazarus, uh, just very, very quickly, because I want to come to Sarah as well, but very quickly. Uh, these six policy briefings, this new uh, optimism from the WHO, is this just for COVID-19 or is this future proofing for further variants, for a, a different type of disease as well? Is the information being able to be carried? It's, it's absolutely future-proofing, as you put it. I mean, these are the kinds of messages that are relevant now and are going to be relevant in future. I mean, I think we have to agree the goal is to end this pandemic as a public health threat. These policy briefs contribute to it, but we need, again, both from governments, but also with input from the population to have a stronger strategy or plan. When I worked at WHO and we worked on an HIV strategy, we had public hearings um, and then it was approved by the member states. So we need that kind of engagement so people feel a part of it, that they're heard, but that ultimately the governments of the world who are taking these decisions and financing what needs to be on um, the activities to carry them out, whether it's vaccine production and distribution or improved right. ventilation, et cetera. Uh, Sarah, you've heard our two guests in Dublin and Geneva. Are you optimistic about the future? Just very quickly. You know, um, while we're thinking about the future, there's still the present. So um, I heard now's the time to run harder. The economic challenges that have come with this pandemic are current. They're present. 30 million jobs have been lost. Food uh, prices are up. Fuel uh, prices are up. Um, African countries need at least $285 billion just to shore up their economy. 23 African countries are now either back bankrupt or high, at high risk of being bankrupt. So it feels almost like a luxury to think about the future when the present is so dire. So I, I really feel like we need to link it. It's a health crisis, but it's also an economic crisis. And for African countries, we are right now in the middle of an economic crisis. I want to thank all our guests in Geneva, Margaret Harris, in Dublin, Jeffrey Lazarus, and in Abuja, uh, Sarah Maka. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Kelvin N., Laura Bird Manley, Ben Clark, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Phil Morrison. The program was edited by Vanish Valilath, uh, Lynn Engwin, and Joe DeFrias. And be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday. Thank you.